All right, well, you may be seated. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. And happy Valentine's Day. I hope you have all had a day that has been full of love and full of romance so far. Has anyone's day in here been full of romance so far? All right. Oh, a few people. All right, that's good. And you're still here. That's great. All right, good. Well, if that has not been your uh, Valentine's Day so far, listen, the night is young. The day is not over yet, you know, so you, you never know what's going to happen. So um, tonight we'll be continuing our study in the book of John, and tonight we'll be specifically in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, uh, because what better text is better for there to be preached on Valentine's Day than the account of Jesus flipping tables in the temple. And so that is what we're going to be, yeah, we got the, the fist in the air, there we go. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, that's what we're going to be tonight. So uh, let's go ahead and jump in, we'll just read our text, and then... Um, We'll talk about what's going on here, and then we'll have a couple of uh, points before we dismiss to our groups tonight. By the way, if it's your first time here, uh, welcome. My name is Tommy Campbell, and I have the privilege of serving here as the Young Adults Pastor. And uh, this is what we do. We get together, we worship the Lord, we read the Word of God because we believe that life is found in His Word. And then after we are in here for the next few minutes in the Word, we'll break out into some discussion groups. And those are age and gender graded. Uh, They last for about half an hour or so. So that's a great place to get connected with more people. And so if you have not yet been a part of the discussion groups or if it's your first time tonight, uh, after the message is over, after we sing, there will be uh, some info on the screens about where those groups are located right around this building. So I would highly, highly encourage you be a part of a discussion group, um, and it will make your experience here tonight so much more worthwhile, and I would say so much more life-giving as well. So, with that said, let's go ahead and read John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 13. The Bible says, the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and he also found money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and their oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18, so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus made. Verse 23, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here tonight we read one of two accounts that are found in scripture of Jesus going to the temple and flipping the tables. This one happens right on the front end of his three-year ministry. So last year, uh, last year, last week, we looked at the beginning of his public ministry where he turned water into wine, and this is uh, very soon after that. And then there's another account of Jesus flipping tables uh, in the temple that happens at the very end of his ministry. And even though we know that this happened, people say, you know, they'll make reference to flipping tables even if they're not Christians. They know there's something about Jesus going in the temple and causing a scene. I feel like it's one of those things that we don't actually think about more than just knowing that it happened. 
See, historians have said that there were likely between 100,000 and 300,000 people living in the city of Jerusalem at the time. And that was just the people who normally lived there. So it was a big city and there were a lot of people. But during Passover, there would have been at least, at least 1 million people in Jerusalem. And that's a, that's a conservative estimate. And the temple, it would have been the focal point of all the busyness and the commotion happening in Jerusalem. You go from between 100 and 300,000 people in the city now to at least a million, probably over a million. All the inns are fully booked. All the people's homes are filled with relatives and other people like that. Every place where there is that someone can sleep, someone is sleeping there, Jerusalem is packed. And the temple is the focus of it all. Specifically, the outer courtyard of the temple where this scene takes place. It would have been always packed with people throughout the week. Because people were coming and they were making their sacrifices for Passover to worship the Lord. And at any given time, there would have been probably, most likely, tens of thousands of people in the few acres of the courtyard of the temple. And so what was happening is that in the outer court, there would be people there, leadership there, who were selling the ox and the sheep and the dove for sacrifices because Passover was there and the people would be worshiping the Lord through sacrifices so people would have to bring a sacrifice. And what would happen is the people who were traveling a great distance to be there, they would often, instead of you know buying an animal back home or having one that they raised and then bringing it all the way to Jerusalem, they would just travel because it was easier to do that without an animal and then they would buy an animal when they would get there. And people would know this so they would sell these animals that people needed in order to sacrifice to the Lord for high profits. Another thing that would happen is that the people who did bring their own animals would have them, uh, they would have to be inspected by the people who were running things at the temple to make sure that the the animal was suitable for sacrifice because you can't have a, you know, a blemished or imperfect sacrifice. But what would happen is out of greed, the people who were inspecting the animals would tell people, even if their animal was suitable for sacrifice, they would tell them, this animal is not suitable for sacrifice. You can't bring this animal before the Lord because it's not going to be pleasing to the Lord. But really the only reason they would say that is so then those people would have to get rid of that animal and then they would have to buy one at a very high price. The animals also had to be purchased in the currency that was used in Jerusalem. And so when people came from far away with different forms of currency and they needed to buy an animal, they would first have to exchange their currency at the temple, which is what these money changers are doing. And they wouldn't give them a fair rate of exchange. They would give them a horrible rate of exchange, uh, hiking things up 10 to 12% so that they could make money off of the people who were there to worship. And Jesus goes with his disciples to celebrate Passover. And he goes to the temple and he stands in the outer courtyard And he looks at all these tens of thousands of people bustling about, cramming into the courtyard, all to do what they're required to do according to the law in order to worship the Lord. And he sees these people who are selling animals to try to get rich. He sees these people who are inspecting the animals and who are lying about it in order to manipulate people. And he sees the the money changers making change for people using the Passover as a means to increase their wealth. And so what Jesus does is he takes some cords. The Bible doesn't say exactly where he got these cords from, but most likely they would have been cords that were used to tie the uh, cages that held the animals. And so there would have been cages everywhere, animals everywhere, so he got some cords, and he makes a whip out of them. And he goes through the courtyard, and he drives everyone out 
of the temple. And he goes over to these tables where the money changers are and he takes the, the buckets that would have had the coins and he dumps it all on the ground. And then he goes and he flips the tables and he completely clears house. And remember, this isn't just like a room with a couple hundred people in it. Like it'd be easy for someone to come in here if they had a whip or something and probably clear us all out of here pretty fast. Now this is tens of thousands of people and Jesus drives them all out. This wasn't just something anyone could do, this was a miracle. There would also have been temple police who were there watching what was happening. There would have been, um, it's said that there was a, a high Roman tower nearby the temple where the Roman uh, centurions, they would look down and observe everything that was happening. And so if there was any commotion, if there was any problems arising, they would go down and take care of it. And yet Jesus does this. He drives all these people out without anything like that stopping him. And it's a miracle. And tonight as we look at this account, I want us to ask ourselves, what is the meaning of this account? Why does John include this in his narrative? And maybe more specifically, why is it that Jesus does this. See, a lot of people will approach this text and they'll say, okay, so um, what can I learn from this? Well, according to this example of Jesus, uh, when am I allowed to get this kind of angry? When am I allowed to finally, you know, take some physical action and take some matters into my own hands? And this text has actually been used um, to support throughout church history to support violence from one group to another, but that's not what the text is talking about. And while we as followers of Christ should have hearts that mimic the heart of Christ, both in what we love and in what we hate, that's not exactly what the story is getting to. So tonight I want us to look at two truths that this text teaches, which let us in on the reason why Jesus does what he does. And they give us a bigger picture about the person and work of who Christ is. So two things tonight before we go to our groups. The first one is this. Number one, God is zealous for the glory of his name. And he will not tolerate the exploitation of his name for man's selfish purposes. God is zealous. He is passionate about the glory of his name. And God will not tolerate the misuse or the abuse or the exploitation of his name for our own fleshly, selfish purposes. Look at back in verse 16. Look what Jesus says. It says, he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. See, Jesus reveals here the reason behind what he did. He says the house of God, the place where God is to be worshipped, has become a marketplace. In the other account of Jesus clearing out the temple, he calls it a den of thieves. See, the place for God to get glory became a place for man to make money. The place where God was supposed to be the sole focus became a place where God was nothing more than a prop to serve the interests of man. And rather than serving the people and helping them serve the Lord, the leaders capitalized off of the consciences of the people. And this misuse of God's name, this exploitation of God's glory and his presence in the temple is what drove Jesus to do what he did. As the disciples watched Jesus, they remembered where in Psalm 69, 9, David says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And that's the verse that's being referenced here. Jesus, as God, was consumed with zeal for the glory of God's name. 
And he was not going to allow God's glorious name to be exploited for man's selfish interests. Now, if you think about it, our world today is not too different than it was back then. I mean, the Bible, Christianity, the name of Jesus, those things are all still often used as props for man's schemes. Right? There are churches that are more concerned with promoting their brand than they are with promoting Jesus. And to some churches, Jesus is simply just a tool to attract people. There are preachers and so-called pastors, and I'll say so-called because the Bible gives the qualifications for a pastor, and one is not to be a lover of money. But there are preachers and pastors, so-called, who are greedy for money and influence and will use the name of Jesus and abuse the teachings of the Bible as a way to find wealth, a way to attract a following, and a way to gain worldly success. It happens in religion all the time. We see it not only in culture and religion, we see it as well in politics. Right? In America, we have a political system where so many politicians on both sides of the aisle misuse the Bible and claim the name of Jesus falsely as a way to get votes and to obtain political power. Seems like you have, you know, two parties, and one is always misusing Jesus' name to appeal to their platform, and one is misusing Jesus' name to try to expand their base and their platform. And we see this all the time in our culture. And it's important for us as followers of Jesus to recognize these things, and not to join hand in hand with those who are going to misuse and exploit Scripture or the name of God, because we, as worshipers of God and as followers of Jesus, should be zealous for Deeply caring about the weight that God's name carries. But here's the thing. We not only have to be aware of the misuses of God's name outside of the church and outside of ourselves. We also have to examine our own hearts to see that we do not do the same. Now we may not be using God as a prop in a public platform to try to get rich or to gain a following. But often we fall into having the same view of God that those who do exploit his name do. And I would encourage each of us to ask ourselves and examine our hearts, asking ourselves, do I see God as a means to an end? Or do I see God as the end in itself? Do I just see God as a means to an end that I desire? Or is God the end in itself for me? Like, do I worship and do I obey God because that's the goal? Because I believe that God is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed. Or do I only worship God? Do I only obey God? Do I only pray to the Lord because what I really want is just to get something from him to feed my own interests and desires? I myself find myself following into this kind of mentality all the time. Sometimes I'll find myself walking in disobedience. And the Lord will convict me about that and say, you know, you're not, what you're doing right now is not in line with my word. And so I'll correct myself. But sometimes the reason I correct myself isn't because God is holy and so I should be holy for the glory of his name. Sometimes the reason I correct myself is because I want God to be happy with me. So he'll give me something I want. And it's still selfish motivations. But here's the thing. That's not how God works. We don't earn his favor by our works. We have his favor because of the work of Jesus on the cross. We don't worship and obey God because he's an all-powerful means of getting what we really want. No, we worship God because we really want him. 
We worship and obey God because he is worthy to be worshiped and obeyed. And when our hearts are in the wrong place, we can't fool him. He can see straight through that. Now also, part of what's happening in the temple here is that the people have no reverence for the place of worship. It's another theme that you'll see here. Right? These money changers go to the temple, the place where it's about God and about worship, and they're more concerned with how the people of God coming together to worship God can benefit them and can profit them than they are about the actual reason for being there, which is to make sacrifices to the Lord. And this is another way in which we as believers must examine our own hearts. Now we in the New Testament, we don't go to the temple. The Bible teaches that the Spirit of God dwells in his people who know him. But we do, in obedience to scripture, gather together as the church to worship God. And in the same way that God's people gathered together to worship him in the Old Testament, so also in the New Testament, God's people gather together to worship God. It's just different now. But this problem can still exist today. So often people come to church, the gathering of God's people to worship him, not because they really care primarily about worshiping God, but because there's a way that being there can serve their own interests. We used to see this all the time, um, probably before we were in more of a post-Christian society, where people would just become members of a local church and kind of fake or play Christianity because in the world at that time it was good for business. So if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a politician or some kind of public figure, people think well of the church, and even if they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, there's people who would come into the church and you would be a church member because obviously that is good for business, but it really isn't about worshiping God. But we have to examine ourselves and make sure that is not us as well. If the primary reason that you come to church is to find a spouse, which isn't a bad thing to do, Church is a great place to find a spouse. But if the primary reason you come to church is to find a spouse, if that's what you're thinking about while you're here, that's really your core motivation for being here. There's a level of reverence for the worship of God by his people that is likely missing in your heart. If the reason you come to church is just to be entertained, and the thing you care about most about coming to church is what's in it for you. What's the food going to be like tonight? How funny are the people that I'm going to meet? How is the vibe in the room? Is this place going to entertain me? Is it going to make me feel good? If that's your concern, if that's your reason for gathering at the place of worship, there is probably a level of reverence for the worship of God by his people that's missing in your heart. And tonight, if you find yourself in a place where you either have been joining hands with those who misuse God's name, or you have yourself motivations for gathering in your heart that demonstrate a lack of reverence to God, then I would encourage you tonight, ask God to change your affections. Ask God to give you zeal for his name. Ask God to make you passionate about his glory. Ask him to change your heart because God is zealous for the glory of his name and he's not going to tolerate the exploitation and misuse of his name for our own selfish purposes. Second truth tonight that we see from this passage, and that's this. Jesus is the new and better temple who has made a way for all people to worship and walk with God. Jesus Christ, he is the new and better temple who has made a way for all people to worship and to walk with God. Look back in verse 18. When Jesus does this, the Jews say to him, what sign are you going to show us for doing these things? 
And Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Verse 20, therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, talking about the physical temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his own body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. The Jews come up to Jesus and they say, okay, what gives you the authority to do this? What sign are you going to show us that you can actually do this? And Jesus says, well, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And they say, it took 46 years to build this physical temple. How are you going to build it again in three days? And Jesus is not talking, though, about the physical temple. Jesus is talking about his own body. And he's specifically talking about his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. And what Jesus is communicating here is that he is the new and better temple. He is the way that all people can be connected to God. He is the perfect sacrificial lamb that takes away the sin of the world as we've seen in the past few weeks from John the Baptist. And this perfect sacrificial lamb would drive out all of the other sacrificial animals that were going to be sacrificed. Why? Because there was no more need for the old covenant temple. There was no more need now for the sacrificial system because instead of all people going to the temple to access God the Father, to be restored to their creator, now all people would access God through Jesus himself. And that's why he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The Jews asked Jesus, what sign are you able to give us for doing what you're doing? And Jesus says, the sign is my death and resurrection. And Jesus' sign for doing what he did is also our sign for doing what we do. Right? We can go and do the work of the Lord. We can go out and make disciples. We can go and preach the gospel and know that what we are speaking is true and what we are doing is profitable and worthwhile. Why? Because we carry with us the authority of Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you're here tonight and you are not a worshiper of God, or if you don't have a real relationship with God, the good news is that even though God is infinitely high, he is infinitely powerful, his name is infinitely glorious as we see here tonight, he is also very near. And the good news is that you don't need to go through a priest to get to God. You don't need to go through a temple to get to God. You don't need to bring an animal and sacrifice it in order to have your sins forgiven. Because Jesus is God's son himself. He came to earth. He died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took the sin of the world upon himself. All the wrong things that we do that separate us from a holy God, Jesus took it upon himself. And he died as the once for all sacrifice for all humanity so that we could have our sins forgiven and so that we could be made right to our holy and loving God. And he rose again, conquering sin and death. And he says, everyone who places their faith in me, everyone who trusts not in their own good works to bring them into relationship with God, everyone who trusts in my finished work on the cross on their behalf, who lays their life down before me, who follows me by faith, acknowledging that I am their Savior and their Lord, he says, will have true life and will be saved. And if you're here tonight 
and you have never taken that step of placing your faith in Jesus, receiving that eternal life that he offers, listen, there's no better time than tonight to do that. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he died on the cross, he bore not only the sins of those who already believe, but the sins of those who are yet to believe, including you, if that is you tonight. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. I don't do this often, but I want to give a chance for people to respond even right now if the Lord is working on their heart. So with everyone's heads bowed and everyone's eyes closed, if you're here tonight and you would say, you know, maybe it's your first time here, you've never heard the good news about what Jesus has done for you. Maybe you've been here a million times and you've heard it a million times, but you've never actually taken that step of faith to place your trust in Jesus and follow after him. Is there anyone here tonight by raising your hand that would say, hey, tonight God has worked on my heart and tonight I am choosing to place my faith in Jesus and follow after him. I want tonight to receive the eternal life that he offers and that forgiveness of sins. By raise of hand, was there anyone here tonight who would, who would say that? All right, we're gonna go ahead and pray and then we're gonna go ahead and sing. And as we sing tonight, let's let our singing be a response to the Lord, a response of worship, a response to the work that he has done and he is doing on our hearts. And even as we sing, I would just encourage you, feel freedom in the room to worship the Lord however you see fit. Whether that's maybe kneeling at your chair and praying, whether that's coming to the front, whether that's going and standing in the back, however you see fit to worship the Lord tonight, I would just encourage you, feel freedom to do that because what we do is not for us. What we're doing tonight is for the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we even talk about love today on Valentine's Day that your love is perfect. And Lord, your word says that you showed your love for us in this way that while we were yet sinners, while we were rebelling against you, while we were just walking continually towards death and destruction, you died for us. And as an act of that sacrificial love that even Ruth talked about earlier, Lord, you laid down your life so that we could have true life. Lord, help us to never get over that. Help us not to keep that to ourselves. Lord, give us hearts that are passionate about the glory of your name. Lord, give us hearts that are passionate about proclaiming the truth and the good news of the gospel to everyone we come into contact with. Lord, give us hearts that are passionate and on fire for making disciples, Lord, not just being stagnant in our faith, not just sitting and accumulating knowledge all day, but Lord, actually going out and being the light of the world that you have called us to be. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.